0: So I don't want you to miss, you know, that song really leans back into an old hymn called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, but there's a distinct change that might have just slipped past you. So in the old hymn, it says, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise, which we sang, or which we heard sung. But then it says, Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. But what did we just hear? Streams of trouble never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. And there's a rich theology of suffering in that line and I think perhaps the author might have been bringing those two things together as a recognition that it's in those sufferings even though we don't seek them out we don't run from them and when God should choose to bring them it's in those sufferings that we experience a mercy of God that we would not experience elsewhere and there's a richness and a depth to our identifying with him in his sufferings in his crucifixion and therefore richness of knowing him and a depth of intimacy with him would we say amen to that? Yeah, and a, and a weighty amen, not a flippant amen. Like, yeah, that makes me feel good, amen. But no, that's right. That's true, and it's as difficult as it may be. It's hard. So I didn't want us to miss that, having just reflected on that song. Uh, let me pray for us as we dive into God's word. and we're gonna be in Galatians chapter three, first nine verses today, as we continue to make our way through the book of Galatians. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sung your praises now. We thank you that you've given us breath with which to sing them. That was from you. And we just returned that breath to you in praise. And now what we want to do is put our minds on your word and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd illuminate that word and be our instructor, our teacher today. Would you guide and guard my mouth to speak what is true according to your word. And uh, then may we be edified together as a people. May we grow in love for you, grow in obedience to you, uh, grow in our understanding of the truth, and maybe grow in our love for one another and our love of our neighbors. May all those things grow in us today. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, friends. I'm going to grab something here as we go into Galatians three. I've asked my friend Lily Hayes to help me out, so Lily agreed. We got a couple weights, so these are just twenty fives. Nothing serious because we're doing shoulder work today. You don't wanna hurt your shoulders when you go to do shoulder work, all right? Lighter weights, folks. Lily, why don't you stand up for me, sweetheart? All right, Miss Lily, would you like to earn $10 today? Sure. Fantastic, she said sure if you didn't hear her. So we got 25 pound weights, I got $10 in my pocket. You can have this $10 and it's your choice, completely your choice. You can either pick those up and do 100 shoulder presses in three minutes, You're already shaking your head. You haven't heard what the other option is. It could be bad. Now, the other option is, you can believe that earlier today, I did those 100 shoulder presses for you. And you can have the $10. You can either believe that's true, or you can pick up the weight yourself, and you can do the 100 shoulder presses. Which option would you like to choose? She chose the second option to believe. Some of you might think it's foolish to believe that he did that for you. But there you go there's your ten dollars everyone say thank you lily and good job now lily i'm going to leave those there because you might decide later on in the service that you want to pick those up okay now at any point if you want to pick those up and you want to start repping out some presses you just go ahead and go for it okay if you see lily standing up at any point just you know cheer her on actually don't cheer her on, because as we come to Galatians chapter 3, thank you, Lily, by the way, for letting me draw attention to you. I appreciate that. So those weights are there, and they're going to stay there. And now, how many of you think, she's got the $10. It's hers. She trusted that I did the lifting for her this morning, that it was done, finished, completed. Nothing she needs to do. She's got the $10. What would you say if Lily just started repping out some presses later on in the service? Yeah. You might think, well, why? It's already done. But here's the interesting thing. As we turn to Galatians chapter 3, we are now turning a corner in the book of Galatians. It divides neatly into, into two chapter units. And so in the first two chapters, what we saw is that Paul was really arguing for his authority as one who was preaching the gospel. He's saying, I am an apostle, and I am not of lesser authority than others. The gospel I preach to you, Galatians, is true. You should trust me. And now he's gonna turn a corner He's going to begin now for the next two chapters. We're going to take him to really bite-sized units to talk about why we cannot return to works of the law instead of faith in order to be made right with God. But the thing is, there's this temptation to keep doing it because those weights, they stay in front of us. And we find ourselves thinking, you know, I know I believe in Jesus, but I might just pick up those weights for a little while. I might just throw up a few reps. I'm not going to do 100, but maybe I'll do five. I'll just add a little bit to the work of Jesus. That temptation is always there in front of us. And I need you to see that because as we work through the book of Galatians, it's very easy, I think, to look at what they were dealing with and go, well, I, I'm not tempted to add the things they were tempted to add to the gospel. I don't, I don't add the works of the law to the gospel. I'm, I believe in Jesus. And I haven't added anything in order to be justified. But friends, what we're really talking about is the impulse towards self-righteousness that exists in every single one of us. The impulse to really believe that we are good enough on our own and that something about us earns merit with God. And it could be different for any one of us. You could be adding to the gospel your intellectual prowess. You could be adding your discipline. You could be adding to the gospel certain ordinances like baptism or the Lord's Supper. You could be adding certain doctrinal things like we just talked about with ordinances like baptism, but you could be adding just on a, in a day to day kind of a way, whatever you think makes you worthy of God's love. This self-righteous impulse is in us. And until we recognize it and recognize that those weights are always right there in front of it. And we're really tempted to pick them up from time to time, or maybe all the time, we're really missing the message of Galatians. And so for the next two chapters, what Paul's going to sort of articulate for us is why we must fight against the enslavement that comes when we pick those weights up again. Those weights are heavy. If you pick them up and try and throw them up a hundred times, that's not easy. Now you see the, the insufficiency in my analogy, because lots of you in this room could probably lift those a hundred times and do that. When we think about the gospel, there's only one who could ever lift the weight. So if you're thinking, well, I could do that too, you're missing the point. The analogy stands in that there's only one who can do the weight, but we're tempted to pick up those weights all the time. And that's what Galatians, what Paul's going to do in the first nine verses of Galatians 3, he's going to give us three weapons to help us not pick those weights up anymore. He's going to give us the weapon of the cross. He's going to give us the weapon of the spirit. And he's going to give us the weapon of scripture. So we're gonna walk through those three weapons together here in just a moment. Let's read Galatians 3, one to nine, shall we? And then we'll make a couple of observations together. So this text is about helping us take up the weapons that we need in our battle to be free from an inclination towards self-righteousness. So Galatians 3, beginning in verse one, says this. So, So foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now let me make a couple points to you. As we work through Galatians, I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. This phrase, works of the law, is a, it's a technical term theologically, but here's what it means. I don't want you to be confused. When he talks about being justified by works of the law, justified just means being right with God being in right standing with God. okay. And when he says, by works of the law, we've already seen him say in chapter two, no one can be justified by the works of the law. The works of the law are simply this, All the actions required in the Old Testament. That's how I want you to think. All the actions required in the Old Testament, not just in the Ten Commandments, not just in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the portion of the Old Testament that we call the law, but through all the Old Testament. Often, when the New Testament refers back to the Old, it will summarize uh, the entire Old Testament, the prophets, the historical books, the law itself, the, what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it will summarize those as the law. And so when Paul says no one is justified by works of the law, what he's saying is no one can be right with God by keeping and doing all the actions required by the Old Testament. Everybody with that? Yes? Okay, so that's what we mean when we say works of the law. That's the first thing I need you to see. now. In Galatians, in our specific context, the Galatians were being called by this group of people who'd come to them after Paul had preached the gospel to them, and they were being called to uh, participate as Gentiles in circumcision, which is part of the Old Testament law. It's something that all the people of God in Israel were supposed to do. And so they are saying to them, you need to both believe in Jesus and that he lifted those weights for you to make you right with God. But then you also need to add on some of your own things. And for them, it was circumcision and certain feasts that they had begun to keep. And what Paul and Peter had come to the conclusion of was we do not now live according to the law, at least certain aspects of it. And we'll hear more about in the chapters to come in order to be made right with God. And therefore they didn't do certain things they had once done under the law. But Again, as I say, my guess is circumcision is not your issue today. All right? As you think about, well, I haven't added that or added this Old Testament law about combining fabrics or Old Testament dietary laws. You probably weren't tempted this week to say, I'm going to make sure I live a, have a kosher diet in order to be justified, in order to be right with God. And so it's very easy for us living where we live here and now, I think, to say, "How is this even? Re- how is this relevant? How might I... I mean, is there any way in which I am picking up those weights? Let me suggest that this, what we're really talking about is an impulse towards self-righteousness, which is in each of us. And the first week, I want to repeat what I did the first week. I gave you some indicators that this impulse might be taking hold of you. And I want to remind you of them, even though I know every single one of you remembers all of these from week one. That was a joke. We okay? We live out there? All right. So a couple of things, and I've added a few here because I really want you to weigh these. If my moral behavior doesn't cause my heart to love Jesus more, and that would be the one I'd want you to remember more than any of the other ones. If you find that when you do good and right things, there's a sense of being puffed up in yourself, a sense of pride in yourself, rather than greater affection for Jesus, that's an indicator that that self-righteous impulse is taking hold. If... You have trouble seeing, admitting, and asking for forgiveness when you're at fault. If you have trouble seeing when you're at fault, admitting it, and then asking for forgiveness, because, friends, here's the thing. Why would you fail to ask for forgiveness? The only reason that you might fail to ask for forgiveness when you're in the wrong is because you cannot bring yourself to do it because you have hinged some part of your rightness with God on being right, and that person cannot admit a wrongdoing. They can't ask for forgiveness because they have put the weight of their salvation, at least to some degree, on their own ability to keep it. The person who knows that Jesus bore the weight of their sins seeks forgiveness freely because they know what's been done for them. Now let me flip that to the other side. If you can't give forgiveness, When it's asked for from you, when someone comes to you in confession, repentance, and they ask you for forgiveness, if you can't offer that forgiveness, it's just the reverse It's the other side of the coin of what I just said. You are believing that they need something other than the finished work of Jesus in order to be justified, in order to be right. And so you may be leaning into that impulse towards self-righteousness. If you have tremendous emotional ups and downs, depending on your performance Of disciplines. If I'm disciplined and I'm up for my quiet time and I am guarding my eyes and I'm making sure to give of my money to the Lord and I'm I'm executing all these disciplines, as long as I'm doing that, I'm up. But the second I don't do it, I'm way down. Can I tell you, this is a trap that I was caught in for so many years and it came from the strangest place that I didn't know about. I've told you many times that I played a lot of sports growing up, played basketball in particular. And there's this competitiveness that's drilled into you when you play sports and it's really rewarded. It's, it's, you get patted on the back for it. What I didn't realize, because no one taught me a biblical version of competitiveness. No one taught me how to compete without putting my identity in that competition. And so if I won, I was way up. And if I lost, I was, where do you think? I was in the dumper. I mean, I was way, and why? Why? Because I thought my value went up and down with my performance. And so over time, I learned that that was unhealthy and not godly. And, but you know what happened and that I didn't see? Is it snuck into my spiritual life. I thought it was over here in this world of sports and competition. What really happened was it began to sink into my mind and my heart in such a way that I based my spiritual life on being better than others. I'll get up earlier and have my quiet time. I'll read more. I'll memorize more. I'll be more I'll be better at the disciplines than you are. I'll do, I'll serve more. And when I see myself outperforming others, I'm well pleased with myself, feeling that I'm in good standing with God. And when I see that my discipline is outpaced by others, then I'm brought low. It is wicked. And can I just tell you that's a hamster wheel you don't want to get on? It's a performance-based self-righteousness. When I'm high or low, depending upon my performance, if I can't pray, have you encountered this, where you've done something wrong, and our first impulse should be to go straight to God in confession and in prayer and to talk with him and to be restored to him, but we need to perform a couple of good deeds before we can do that. Have you done that? Say, I'm gonna make sure I... Let me, a couple days of having my quiet time on time. Let me, a couple days of serving my family pretty well. And then, then I'll be able to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Cause now I got something in my hand to bring him. Like, look, look, this is why you should forgive me. Look at the good stuff that I've been doing. It's an indicator that self-righteousness is beginning to take hold. If I feel superior to others who aren't as disciplined to me, I already alluded to that. If you're a relatively confident person by nature, can I tell you something? One of the indicators of self righteousness is that you lack empathy for others who aren't maybe as confident as you or able to do as much as you. If you lack empathy towards the person who struggles, it's an indicator of self righteousness. And friends, if you're on the other end of that spectrum, if you maybe are more naturally insecure, can I just tell you that's not humility? It's just a, a subtle form of pride in which you've based your standing on God with your performance and you feel insecure because you feel your performance doesn't measure up and you will often find yourself jealous or bitter towards those who are confident and those whom God is perhaps using in ways that you don't see him using you. Both of those things are indicators of self-righteousness. Do we see that this still applies today? This is not a Galatian issue. It's an us issue. We continue to pick those weights back up. Lily, how you doing over there? You picked them back up yet? Good job, girl. So let's talk about these three weapons that we have. The weapon of the cross is the first one that we see, and we see it in verses, in just in verse one. So let me read this again to you and look at it really carefully. Let's get our eyes on the text. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Now that's as strong a language as you're going to find in the New Testament. That word foolish Galatians, some commentators have said you could translate that in modern day speak as you idiots whom I love. What he's saying to the Galatians, that word foolish literally means you are refusing to use your minds to examine what's in front of you. You are shutting your brain off and not realizing what these people are saying to you. That's what he's saying. And he says it twice. He says, you are foolish. Now, one of the things you need to hear from that is that this is not a, you know what? They believe in Jesus. They've added a few works to that belief To be right with God, that's not that big a deal. His exasperation and his language is an indicator that this is a huge deal. He doesn't speak like this to any other church in the entire New Testament, not even the Corinthians who are out of control. He speaks stronger to the Galatians than to any other church. Oh, foolish, oh, you idiots. Sometimes being firm and strong is needed. Sometimes we need to receive that kind of, sometimes we need someone to say to us, you idiot. So next time someone says you idiot, just receive it. <laughs> you idiot. What are you doing? That's, that's Paul's stoner. And he says, who has what bewitched you? That word is a word which means who has charmed you or who has put you under a spell. What he's saying is these people who are coming to you, somehow they have, they have Cast a spell upon you so that you're believing something you shouldn't be believing. You've picked up those weights. That They put these weights down and they said, here, pick them up. Do some reps. Jesus did them, but you need to do them too. And he says, who has cast a spell? He's saying you're spellbound. Somehow you've become so enamored. And I'll show you in a minute at the end of verse one why he can't understand how they would be so enamored. But the first thing I need you to see here is he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that word who is singular, not plural. And the importance of that is he's saying, yes, there's this group of people who have been saying something false to you, but there's really one behind it. And it's the devil. And he says, who has bewitched you? He's not saying who among all these people, this group has spellbound you. He's saying The work they are doing is not the work of the Lord. It is the work of the devil. And from that, friends, do you see that this is a real spiritual battle? The enemy loves it when we pick up those weights. He adores it. He doesn't need to trick us into following him. He just needs to get us to add anything to Jesus. It's all he needs. He's well pleased. Because to add to the cross is to lose the cross. Now, here's why he's so perplexed. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then what's the next line? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ, that Christ was portrayed, publicly portrayed, as, what's the word there, church? Crucified. Now, what's he pointing out? He's saying, okay, you've been fooled, and you've been foolish. What's the weapon? What's the remedy? What's gonna break the spell Not the moral example of Jesus. Not even the resurrection of Jesus that he goes to. Where does he go? The cross. I can't, Galatians, understand how you are so foolish and so spellbound by this requirement of works when you've got the cross right in front of you. And by saying that, what he's saying is, here's the weapon. Pick it up. The cross of Jesus. His suffering. The presumption is this to look at the cross of Jesus and its perfect payment for sin, that it is completely sufficient. How can you look at that and think that anything you would do could add any merit to that? So here's the the weapon for us, church. When you are tempted to pick up those weights and to say, my self-righteous instinct is beginning to rise up in me, he says, look at the cross. Go back to the cross. Because when you see the cross, what you're seeing is the perfect son of God laying down his life for you. And to imagine when you look at that, that you would say, and my good works will add something to that. You'll see how foolish that is. If you don't put the cross in front of you, you can't see the juxtaposition. And he's saying you need to see that in comparison to the cross, to imagine that you're getting up every day for a year and having your quiet time, which is a great thing to do, but it doesn't get you any merit points with God for your salvation. To imagine that that would add anything to this is absolute astounding. It's absolutely astounding to Paul. So a couple of implications for us here. Number one, in saying that, to to take up this weapon of the cross, the thing I want you to see, friends, is you haven't proclaimed the gospel, the good news, you haven't proclaimed it until you've proclaimed the cross. It's not enough to proclaim the benefits of Jesus, to the sort of good things he brings into a life, the moral example of Jesus. You have to proclaim the cross, and the gospel has not been proclaimed until the cross has been proclaimed as payment for sin. The cross, go back to it. Don't let go of it. Now, friends, let me say, if you're caught up in the bitterness of unforgiveness... Go back to the cross. Can I give you the cross? Go back to it, and when you look upon it, recognize that that was necessary for you. You needed the cross. Your sin required that action. Not somebody else's, yours. You will be free to forgive when you see that. Go back to the cross. Friends, if you're, in particular, taking my younger friends, but really any of us, my younger friends in particular though, If you're enamored with worldly philosophies, worldly ideas, can I just tell you, they all amount to some version of self-justification. Every single one. There's not a single worldview, worldly philosophy that does not amount to somehow making myself right before God based upon my own ability, my own strength, my own perception, other than a Christian worldview. If you're enamored with those worldviews, Can I give you the cross? Go to the cross. Colossians chapter two, two says that Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. And then Colossians two, three says, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have not understood anything in this world, not math, science, history, politics, no matter what the subject, you have not understood it until you've understood it in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. What I mean by that is, you have not understood any wisdom or knowledge because he is the one who possesses all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You have not understood it until you've understood how that knowledge fits within the purposes of God in Christ in Christ. You have not understood it until you've understood it it through Christ, which is to say with his illuminating power moving through you to cause you to understand it as true wisdom and true knowledge. And you have not understood it until you've understood it for Christ, how it points to him and exalts him. You have not understood any piece of information in the history of humankind until you've understood it in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Don't be enamored with worldly philosophies. Go to the cross. It is the very wisdom of God. Now, friends, that's the weapon of the cross. Now let's look at the weapon of the spirit. In verses two through five, this is where Paul focuses in on what the spirit does and who he is. And just look with me again now at verses two and verse five. So in verse two, we're gonna see the spirit from our perspective, and then in verse 5, we're going to see it from God's perspective. So here's what he says. He says, let me ask you only this. So in other words, he's saying, all right, let's get down to the most important question, Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the presumed answer is what, church? Faith, not by works. So what he's saying is, Galatians, look through your eyes and tell me, When the Spirit of God came to indwell you, as Christ promised it would when he left the earth and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father and said, I will send the Holy Spirit into the world. And when that Holy Spirit came, did it come to you because you did enough good things that the Spirit said, okay, now I will come and take up residence in your life? Or did the Spirit come when you believed? And the answer is, when I believed. Now, verse five is gonna flip that viewpoint. And what does he say in verse 5? Does he, meaning God, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the same question reversed in its perspective. He's saying, not only I'm asking you to look from your perspective, now I'm asking you to look from God's perspective. Did he, looking down at you, decide to give the Spirit when he saw you believe or when he saw you work? And what's the answer, church? Believe. So what he's saying is the spirit which has taken up residence inside you, the very spirit of God, is the evidence that salvation is by faith. And therefore you have now living in you a weapon to fight against this self-righteous impulse. Now, I just want to get the tip of the iceberg here, but let me enumerate a few things the spirit does to help us in this battle. Because the work of the Spirit is so rich. And let me say, the implication of this point of verses 2 through 5 is that you need a rich daily interaction with the Spirit of God. Now in theologically conservative churches like ours, for some reason the Spirit sometimes and the work of the Spirit can make people uncomfortable. But friends, if you don't focus on the work of the Spirit according to the Scriptures, you are tying one hand behind your back in your battle against self-righteousness. You need a rich daily interaction. All that the Spirit has to give, you should want. Resist nothing that the Spirit gives. Measure it by God's word, but receive all that the Spirit has to give. All the gifts and the work that He would do. So, friends, we want to embrace the work of the Spirit. Now, let's talk about how He then helps us as a weapon in this work. So, we need a rich daily interaction. So the spirit was given for faith. That's what we just heard, not for works. So he is always present to remind me not to take up the law. In other words, when I'm tempted to pick up those weights and say, I'll just rep out a few presses, the spirit is in me going, don't do that. Stop doing it. You have a constant testimony. One who dwells in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, one who dwells in you, who's constantly testifying to the sufficiency of the cross and your, and your lack of need to take up any other thing. He's always there testifying. Have you ever had a, a song that was a, an earworm? Yeah, they're kind of troubling sometimes, right? So you're gonna love me for this. The, the all-time earworm is baby shark, do-do, 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 baby shark, do-do. It's so annoying, isn't it? Now, the song of the spirit is not annoying, but the song of the spirit is an earworm because he's always there saying, faith, not works, do, 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 faith, not works, do, 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 faith, not works, do, do. Now, I know it's really cheesy, but you will remember it and you can eliminate baby shark and just sing faith, not works. Now, every time that song gets sung, he is always there you have to listen, listen, Because the Spirit's never saying, works, not faith. The Spirit is always saying, faith, not works. Always. And he's always there to remind you. Now the Spirit is given for faith, so he's always there to testify. But the Spirit is given for faith, and so it stands to reason that trying to add works of the law to my justification will diminish my experience of the Spirit. So I want a rich daily interaction with the Spirit, so I don't want to take up the works of the law. Now, last couple things here. For this point, the spirit is given for faith. And so he will living in us reinforce and build faith. So he's not just there reminding us he's actively building our faith, which is how we are justified before God. So here's a couple ways he does that when he convicts me of sin. And that's part of the spirit's work. He doesn't convict me in such a way as to condemn me and crush me. Because my forgiveness, my righteousness, is not based upon my performance. So when I fail and need conviction and need forgiveness, the Spirit brings that conviction in such a way that I seek forgiveness, but not in a way that crushes me beyond repair, but causes me to say, I can be forgiven. Isn't this the beautiful work of the Spirit that he can convict, but not in such a way that I am condemned and and hopeless? That I am convicted, and friends, some of you maybe have never, if you're not in Christ and you've never experienced this, every time you feel you do something wrong, the weight of that so crushes you, you can't move forward for weeks on end. And I want to say, here's the miracle of what the Spirit does. He comes in and he says, yes, you are wrong, and that was not good. At the same time, there is, through the witness of the Spirit in us, this hope in the love of God, which we have not been separated from because of that sin, this hope in the redeeming power of the work of the cross that is there. And he's testifying to that even while he's convicting us. Can you imagine that? Haven't you experienced that? It's so good. You are at the exact same time being convicted of your sin and being upheld in the love of God in Christ Jesus so that they're never pulled apart. It's fantastic. Look, I don't like being convicted of sin any more than the next person. But at the same time, when the Spirit's are going, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved your love. Do you see how that doesn't crush you? And then you can go and say, I need to be forgiven. Would you forgive me for the thing that I did? You own it. You don't have to make excuses or explain why you did it. You just say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness and I need to ask for it from you because I sinned against you. It's amazing. The only way to do it is to have the spirit there constantly going, building up your faith in the finished work of Jesus. He will show me, this is another thing the Spirit does to to bolster faith. He will show me whether my actions are proceeding from faith or from self-righteousness. Because I can do the same action out of self-righteousness or out of faith. Do you know that? It can look just the same on the outside. To the the lay person just watching, they're gonna go, that's pretty good action. But the Spirit knows if that was birthed out of a self-righteousness in me, or whether it was birthed out of faith and trust and a love of God that I, I just want to obey because I love you. The Spirit knows. And the Spirit reveals that and shows that and helps us to be, have our actions born out of not self-righteousness, but out of faith. So he's testifying to us all the time about that. And the last thing that the Spirit, I'll just, again, tip of the iceberg stuff here. The last thing the Spirit does that I'll mention here. Is that when we find ourselves in impossible situations, rather than causing faith to diminish, he causes faith to grow. In impossible situations, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? When we find ourselves in those places, and this you would expect, and this is what you would expect: is my faith is going to diminish? It's going to shrink back. I, I'm just I'm I, I'm under the pile. It's too much. And when the Spirit's there, what the Spirit does, he go, I'm given for faith, and I will build faith. And so rather than that circumstance causing us to shrink back in faith, he takes it and he causes our faith, he fans the flame of our faith with it. It's absolutely supernatural. It is not human for this to happen. So all of that work of the Spirit here, friends, is because Paul is saying in these verses, That this daily rich interaction with the spirit is so necessary as a weapon against self-righteousness. That's what he's pointing us to. Do we see that? Yes. All right. Let's look at the last one. It's the weapon of scripture. And we'll take our last few minutes here to to look at this. In verses six through nine, you might not readily see how this is talking about the weapon of scripture, but let me just show you and give you a brief explanation. So in verse six, he says, just as, in other words, in the same way, Galatians, that you're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. In the same way, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let me just walk you through a little history here. This is a, a reference to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, uh, well, first, let me say, the Galatians, the people that are tempting the Galatians, they're referring back to Moses and saying, you need Moses plus Jesus. You need the law of Moses plus Jesus. And so what Paul's going to do is go, oh, I'll go further back than Moses. 430 years before Moses lived and the law was given, Abraham lived. And so let's find out how Abraham got right with God. Let's, let's examine that. So he goes to Genesis 15. And there's this moment in Genesis 15. Where God promises Abraham a son. And through that son, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham's a hundred years old. He has no children. God walks him outside of his tent and he says, look up at the stars in the sky. Now just imagine, no light pollution. What do we say? Scientists think that they will, they'll, the technology that they have, will have in the, in the coming years, will reveal probably two billion galaxies. So he's not seeing all two billion of those stars, but there's a lot of stars in the sky. And so just imagine now that he's seeing all these stars. And God says to him, I promise, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, I'm a hundred. Hundred year old men don't have kids. But that's not what Abraham says, is it? Because in Genesis 15, we hear this. God showed Abraham the stars and said, I'll give you a son, and through him, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the next line is, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was not justified by his works. He was made right with God by his faith. And then, now, that's what he's alluding back to Genesis 15. Go to verse 7 now. And it says, Know then, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So his conclusion is, if Abraham, way before Moses and the law ever existed, was made right with God by faith, then the conclusion is that it is those who are of faith that are the fulfillment of that promise. So Abraham was promised descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Who are those descendants? They're those who believe in the same way Abraham believed. They're those who are made righteous through faith. Now someone might say, okay, How do you know that just because Abraham was made right with God that way, the descendants that he was promised are those who also are going to be justified before God that way? And that's what he's going to answer in verse 8. So in verse 8, he says this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now he's going... This is what God did in Genesis 15. Let me take you back to Genesis 12. So he goes three chapters earlier and he says, before Abraham had been called out of his homeland, before he had been circumcised according to God's standard in Genesis 17, before he had been willing to offer up his son Isaac, trusting that God would raise him for the dead, before he did any good work, God called him and said, through you I will bless you all the nations. What's that blessing? According to verse eight, it's that they would be justified. And how would they be justified through faith? So in other words, he's saying justification is by faith. Abraham proves it in Genesis 15. And he showed us all the way back in Genesis 12, even before he justified Abraham, that he was going to justify everyone who would be justified the same way Abraham would be justified by faith, not by works. Now, all of that friends, all of that is to say this, here's the weapon of scripture in that. What Paul is doing is he's saying, you think, Galatians, that perhaps we are departing from the ways of God because we're not following the law anymore to get our righteousness. We're not doing the works of the law. And so you think this is the way God used to operate and now we're operating in a new way and it feels like we are not following the way God has always operated. And what is he saying? Paul's saying, no, no, no. The way God has always operated is to make people right with him by faith. And he points all the way back to Abraham. He says there's this thread running from beginning to end of scripture that testifies that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's why he says he preached the gospel to Abraham. He proclaimed the good news of salvation by faith to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And if that was the case in Genesis 12, here's the thing, friends, I want you to see. When we read our Bibles, we are not dealing with one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. That's a disease that too many Christians pick up. God has been the same God from beginning to end, and he has always made people right with him for faith and by faith, not by works. Never. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to see then what is the purpose of this law that he gave. We'll see that in the coming weeks. There is a purpose to that law. But what he's trying to give us is the weapon of Scripture to say, friends, if you find yourself leaning into the self righteous impulse, what remedy? you have in the cross, what remedy you have in the spirit and what remedy you have in the scriptures. Go back and read it again. Read larger sections of scripture. I go back and forth between small sections to focus in on details and big picture, uh, big swaths of it, because I want to see the big story and the big picture. And you need to go back and forth between those things so that you're getting the big picture of God's revelation from beginning to end. And as you see that God has been the same God from beginning to end, you will it will help you put to death this self-righteous impulse because you'll see this has never been God's way. It's never been God's way to justify people based upon their works. So praise God that we have the weapon of the cross, yes? Praise God that we have the weapon of the Spirit living in us and moving through us to build faith and to point us to faith. And praise God that we have the weapon of his word so that we can go to it again and again and see that he has always been the same. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship in song to close our time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these weapons that you have given us and help us to take them up wisely and well. Father, I pray that you would take your word now, hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Our endeavor here today has been to examine your scriptures together. and We've wanted to engage our minds. Don't let us be foolish, like Paul had to say to our our brothers, the Galatians, our sisters, the Galatians where they would not put their mind to the truth, but turned away from it. And so I pray that that would not be true of us, that we would, in the power of your spirit, put our minds to the truth of your word, hear the gospel, and walk in it in all its implications. I pray for my friends here today, Lord Jesus, who have not believed in you, that as they hear this message, we pray that it would strike their hearts as good news, because it is good news, and that they would sense you, Holy Spirit, reaching to them, Extending the love of Christ to them. We pray that that would be the case. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and conclude our time with song.